My next conversation is with Representative Robert Johnson III, Democrat representing District 94 in the House of Representatives, which includes portions of Adams and Jefferson County. Adams County is the home to Natchez, Mississippi, which is one of the oldest cities on the Mississippi River. In fact, it's even older than New Orleans. Robert Johnson has served in either the House or the Senate since 2004 with, I think, one year in which he was not serving in either. Representative Johnson is the vice chairman of the House Minority Caucus. I'm the chair of that caucus, so Representative Johnson is my right hand, and I rely on him very heavily. He's an African-American who uh, grew up in a somewhat segregated city with with two high schools, uh, one of which only had two white students. Then he went to school out of state and went to law school, went to undergraduate out of state, and then he went to law school out of state and was tempted to stay in another state and not come home to Mississippi. But thankfully, he made the decision to return to Mississippi, to his home state, and try to make a difference. Robert Johnson is one of the brightest and most articulate people I have ever known in my entire life, and he's certainly among the brightest and most articulate people serving in the Mississippi legislature. When you think of one of the great orators, any anyone that comes to mind, I would put Robert Johnson up next to that person. You can give him about five minutes on a particular issue and then send him to the well of the House, and he can give one of the greatest speeches you will have ever heard. The House falls hush when Robert Johnson moves to the well, and that can't be said about 110 of the other 122 members of the House of Representatives. In our discussion, you will hear us talk about his service in both the House and the Senate and particularly how he came to understand how the process, uh, the committee process and the committee chairmanships can be used, that power can be used to benefit communities. And he will talk to us about how, as transportation chairman, he used that power to put roads and bridges in places where, because of the lack of good roads and bridges, it was difficult to lure industry, which, of course, bring jobs and can completely transform a place like Mississippi. He will also talk about his involvement in the renewal of our Medicaid program, which is probably the largest or the second largest portion of our entire budget in the state of Mississippi. I think it's an $8 billion program in Mississippi. He was the lead negotiator from the House back in 2009 when we implemented a bed tax so that the state could pay its match and draw down the necessary federal dollars so that we could continue to have a viable Medicaid program in the state of Mississippi. And he was also uh, instrumental in this year's, negotiating this year's Medicaid Technical Amendments Bill, which is the way we reauthorize and tell the Division of Medicaid how we want that division to take care of our indigent folks in the state who need health care. Medicaid is one of those programs that gets politicized because some people perceive it as a giveaway program for people with their hands out. But Medicaid is an insurance program, and it helps folks who don't have any other way to get health care get that health care. If we don't take care of that population, then it affects all of us in this state and in this country. When people get sick and they, they contract disease or infection, Obviously, that can impact an entire community. And this program is mostly comprised of children and elderly. So we're not talking about young, able-bodied adults who simply choose not to go to work. Uh, and in the in the context of Medicaid expansion, the population that would have received some uh, primary method of uh, health care coverage was working poor. That was the the working definition that everyone used. These are folks who have one, sometimes maybe two jobs, maybe single parents with children, but they're they can't afford to have health care insurance and their employers don't provide that type of insurance. So they're stuck. And when they have a child that gets sick, they try to take care of the child at home. They may not be able to do that. The child may get sicker and sicker, and eventually they show up on the door of an emergency room where the care costs three or four times as much as compared to going to your local physician and getting some medicine or a shot and taking care of the problem that way. (music) 
So you were saying you represent not only Adams County, but... Uh, Franklin and Jefferson County. Okay. Franklin is uh, to the east, like down uh, Highway 84. Jefferson is to the north, like Natchez along the river. Did you grow up down there? Grew up in Natchez, uh, born and raised and, uh, until I left and went to go to college. Now, when I was in junior high, I came up to um, watch a football game. Moss yeah. Point played up there. And back then, as I recall, there was a North Natchez and a South Natchez. North Natchez and South Natchez. We had two high schools. Which one did you graduate I from? went to North Natchez. All right. The one that had, uh, they were both integrated schools, except we only had two white people. That ain't really integrated now, is <laughs> the it? The other one was like 40, <laughs> like 60, 40. We had, we had two where I went, but so uh, it was, they, they were good. They were good. It, it made for a nice mixture. It was good. You, you had a, uh, a, a football player who went to Pitt. From there, Hugh Green. Hugh Green, yeah, came in third in the Heisman Trophy as a defensive end. Yeah, Heisman Trophy voter. So he was on that team that we came up yeah. and played. Most point had a decent team, but yeah. uh, Hugh Green just manhandled us. Yes, I think he made his bones uh, playing Moss Point. I think Pascagoula Picayune, one of them. one of them had a running back named Rooster. That's yeah, Rooster Jones from Pascagoula. Rooster Jones. The story is that uh, Johnny Majors came down to see Rooster Jones, and uh, Hugh Green was having his way with yeah, the eating team him and up. Rooster. Yeah, and he said, well, who is that guy? I hadn't heard of him. So that's how he ended up at Pitt. Didn't they both go to Pitt? I think they both, yeah, they yeah. both went to Pitt. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's right. That's incredible. Yeah. So um, I didn't know you back then, obviously. Nah. Um, and you, so you finished high school there, and you went to college somewhere in— St. Um, Louis, Washington okay. University. Yeah. All right. And is that a is that a, what kind of school is Washington University? It's is a, it a it's a private it's a private liberal arts school in uh, in uh, in St. Louis in the city. It's uh, been around for a while, but it was uh, it was a great opportunity for me. So why St. Louis? You know, my I had a middle school teacher who was uh, who was from St. Louis and had gone to Washington University, and she sort of uh, mentored us, uh, myself and two other students just sort of i mean she did these, these are the kind of things she did when we were like in the seventh grade she encouraged us all to subscribe to time magazine new newsweek and the new york times sunday magazine and so we visit her in the evenings and have dinner and come by on the weekends we sit down talk about stuff we read and so we just stayed engaged like that during the whole i mean until i finished high school and i applied to college she uh i had scholarships other places and she said she just encouraged me to get out of the state, that this was an opportunity for me and that I, it would broaden my sense of where where we should be in the world. And she was right. And so I, I took advantage of it. So, Robert, you're one of the brightest guys I know and I've ever known. No, I and, appreciate that. Well, and, and I don't want to make you blush, no. but um, but it's true. Okay. And, and I and I appreciate your intellect. So did your teacher see that intellect, uh, intellectual ability yeah, in you and these other students? I think so. Uh, you know, the two of us ended up going to Washington University and we went on academic scholarships, and the other one went to Millsaps. She's a doctor now. And the other one, uh, my other, who's my best friend, is in Minneapolis in business, doing well. Uh, but, yeah, she 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 saw it. She didn't just limit it to us. She encouraged We sort of liked it and, and got involved in it and enjoyed all these conversations and these talks. So it was good. Yeah, apparently she did, yeah. So, so one of the three you mentioned is a, a doctor, and the other one is a business person. Yeah. And and you uh, took a different route. You're an attorney. Yeah. Well, the one that's a business person, we, he he went to law school. He decided it wasn't for him. Uh, but yeah, I'm an attorney. I always wanted to be. I mean, from the time I was five or six years old, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I know that sounds weird. I was, you know, that does sound weird. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, interestingly uh, enough, I you know I, I was born in 1958 and I grew up. I heard David uh, Senator Jordan talking about you know, his travails during the civil rights movement. But as a child, I was a child of it and was very sensitive and cognizant of what was going on. My parents made sure of that. In fact, at uh, seven, eight years old, I walked picket lines to boycott stores who wouldn't hire African-Americans. I, I mean, I, so... In I your hometown? A, in my hometown. So I had a sense of, you know, what it is that, uh, you know, I think I should be doing and what was important. But I, you know... As bad as it was, I mean, I grew up at, you know, white bathrooms, black. When I went to the dentist or the doctor as a black side or, or, I mean, a color side or a white side, all those things, I still loved, you know, I, you know, I still loved Mississippi. I loved home. I, you know, all the things I like to do are here in my well, what, what family. What is it here. about this place? I mean, you know, we, we recognize, most of us recognize we have some shortcomings in Mississippi, oh, yeah, yeah, even yeah, today. Yeah. But we love our state. What, I, it, what is it? It You know, it's... Uh, 
it's still kind of, you know, it's a pristine place. You know, we still three three quarters of the state is forest. You can do anything outdoors you want to do. We hadn't, you know, we hadn't ruined our environment. We still have the purest water aquifers in the United States, probably in the world. And the people here is just so much depth and so much culture. I mean, I, you know, Natchez is sort of like little New Orleans that will, you know, I, it's older really, than New Orleans, right, right? And it's real progressive. I mean, it was always been that way. I mean, progressive in the sense that you know, culturally, uh, people. It was always in you know with music and theater and all those. I mean, for a small town, we we had it all. And it's kind of a become a bastion for uh, the LGBT community. Yeah, it has. I mean, that that started. I mean, I mean, people talk about the LGBT community like it's new. I mean, there were there were people who were out there yeah. when I, 40, 50 years yeah. ago. When that I just was, was LGBT before well, it was cool, right? Before it was cool, right. <laughs> and so, uh, but, you know, I, you know, it's just the music and the heritage. I was proud of it because, and then, you know, I was a, a student and, and a student of uh, literature and, and I, you know, I recognized that some of the greatest writers, some of the greatest playwrights, some of the greatest musicians, I mean, they came from here. And so, I was proud of 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 that part of it. Yeah, I, you know, I had some, uh, you know, like everybody else, there were things that I was embarrassed about and I wanted to see better. But those are the things I thought that we could improve on. We already had the great things that we could be proud of. We just need to clean up our act on other fronts. So, it would it be fair to say when you graduated from college and you went to law school and you, you where'd you go to law school? University of Illinois in Champaign. Right. And so, so you're again, you're out of the state going to school, and and I'm sure you did well in law school. Did you have options available to you to go anywhere in the United States that you wanted to go? Essentially, not as many as I wanted, but I knew I wanted to come home. I mean, I, I had yeah, I could have been somewhere else. Right, in but you fact, chose to come. I back chose to, the to come state. back. I mean, I I went to law school with people who said, "Why would you go back to Mississippi?" I said, "Hey, man, that's that's where I want to be." So yeah, and, and you did that, and yeah. you, you um, you've established yourself as a a very good trial lawyer in this state. Yeah, uh, and, and you're you know not only one of the brightest people I've known, you're one of the best orators I've ever known. I've not ever tried a case with you, thank goodness, because I do mostly plaintiffs work and you do mostly defense work. Yeah, uh, and you probably would have kicked my behind, but <laughs> I don't but know. but by reputation and by what I know of you having served with you, I, I know that you you do well in court. Um, so, so what, what, tell me about some of the clients that you've represented in big trials in the last few years. Uh, you know, I, uh, just as a background, I'm, I'm a small town lawyer. I, I had a, a solo practice. I did a lot of criminal defense work, uh, and did a lot of plaintiff's work. Uh, but there was a time when people came to Southwest Mississippi and companies were getting sued and they need somebody. There had been a tradition where they would hire black lawyers to just come sit at the desk. You sit at the table and didn't do anything. You just wanted to be in the courtroom. Just, just to be black. Yeah, just to be black. You know, you had five or six white lawyers and you had a black lawyer and say, oh, we got somebody black on the team. <laughs> and so, but they, they came an occasion where people needed somebody to really try a case. And uh, I, my first defense trial that I tried was in uh, a case in Claiborne County representing General Motors where a man had been killed and uh, a lady had suffered paralysis. But it was clear that it wasn't the company's fault, and they were ready to fight it. And it was and a product liability, product liability claim against, claim against, General, against Motors. General Motors. But it had already been a settlement against the 18-wheel truck that ran the stop sign and ran into these people and, and, and caused injury. But anyway, but it was my first foray into defense work. And, and what, what I liked about it is what I always wanted to do in law, and that is when you do that kind of work, you know, as a plaintiff's lawyer, you don't really make any money trying cases. You make money forcing it to settlement. And what I got a chance to do is do what I love, and that is try cases in, in front of a jury. And so we we uh, we won that case, an unlikely victory in a, in a in a jurisdiction like Cleveland County. And then I, you know, that, that went into General Motors. Uh, Your phone started to ring. Yeah, Wyatt Pharmaceutical, uh, uh, R.J. Reynolds, uh, Johnson and Johnson. I mean, and I, I did a lot of pharmaceutical defense work. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you've done well with that, and you you even do some work for those companies and similar companies outside the state. Right? Yeah, I've, I've I've tried cases in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and been uh, started cases in L.A. County and, and Los Angeles, and some in St. Louis. And so it it has afforded me an opportunity to to go places that, as a lawyer in Mississippi, I probably wouldn't have had much of an opportunity. So I, I've enjoyed that too. And, but and and then that has been contributed a lot to my perspective and my commitment to public service here in the state too, because what I've seen other places and where I know we can be. So, 
So when did you decide to run for the Mississippi legislature? It was in 1991 uh, or 92. Yeah, it was 91. And I, in fact, uh, the GM case was the first case I really took to trial as a defense lawyer. The first case I was working on, I worked on with Edward Blackman. Uh, he was representing uh, tobacco companies, and they needed a lawyer. And, and working with him, he was also involved in legislative redistricting. And we were working on a case, and, and the issue came up about we got some new districts. There's a Senate district down in your area. Maybe you ought to run. And I, I didn't pay much attention to it. I always knew I wanted to run for for office. I'd always been involved in student government, all that, throughout college and law school. And so when the opportunity presented itself, it was in a district that the person from Natchez should, it should the candidate probably shouldn't have come from Natchez because only 6% of the district was in Natchez. But, you know, I was young. I didn't, you know, it's like a young person doesn't know that you can be beat. Kind of, you know, you're not so young, but you kind of like that now. A lot, lot of confidence. Yeah, right? a lot of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I ran and beat an incumbent. In a, in a district and uh, and served 11 years in the Senate. And and then how did you uh, give up that seat in the Senate? I got beat. We had a redistrict. I always knew that uh, if anybody, for instance, the African-American Democrat ran from Pike County, 55 to 60 percent of the district was in Pike County. So, I, you know, it would be difficult for me to meet, beat somebody who was from that town. And somebody from Pike County finally ran. <laughs> And that's how I got beat. So it was just a numbers game. It was just a numbers and he game. had the numbers. He had the numbers, yeah. Right. yeah. So um, did you spend a few years out of the legislature then? One, one year. One year I was out, was completely satisfied with being out. I served 11 years. Uh, I, you know, I'd been term limited, not by choice, but probably I thought it was a good thing. I, I had a great run in the Senate. Uh, but Philip West, who was serving in House District 94 as a representative and got elected after I'd been in the Senate. Uh, saw an opportunity to run for mayor of the city of Natchez and resigned. Well, he won, and so he got elected. And so uh, I didn't choose to run. I literally got drafted to run. And he had to resign had because to resign. of his position, his as, position mayor. And, as mayor. And we had some discussions with Senator David Jordan about the uh, the, the form of government. Yeah. Some forms of government will allow you to serve on the uh, the council or board of aldermen right. and serve in the legislature. Others will not. But, yeah. but no mayor can serve in both, right? Yeah, no mayor can serve in both. Yeah. yeah. So you so you run for a special election for yeah. Mayor Philip West. Yeah, seat. finish his term. Three years were left in his term. And what year did you and you won that election? Yeah, right? that was in two thousand and four. Okay. Yeah. And who was speaker then? Who was speaker when I got elected, Billy McCoy? It was it was the Billy McCoy had been speaker for a year. Okay. Yeah. So there was no speaker election initially. Not, what, what, that that had happened before the year I wasn't there. Okay, and so. Um, let's fast forward. You're, you're serving in the House of Representatives, and um, in 2008, um, there was a speaker election, and Billy McCoy was challenged by a representative from yeah. up in Lowndes County. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how that came came to be and, and how you voted in that election. Uh, you know, uh, it's this is an interesting conversation, and I'll, I'll get in a, probably more detail than you want to, but I'll, I'll do it really rather quickly. I, I had served in the Senate. Uh, and you know, it was in the Senate when you get elected, you automatically because there are only fifty fifty of us, you automatically get appointed to a money committee. But I'd I'd grown to learn how important what committee you were on, what committees you were chairman of. Uh, we had, there was a, a considerable contingent of African Americans in the House of Representatives, enough to to have a great bearing on the outcome of the Senate of the uh, Speaker's race. And I went to. Uh, Speaker McCoy and said, look, I'm okay. Uh, he said, I want your support. I said, that's fine. I said, but look, I'm a little bit, you know, frustrated, not frustrated, but I'm a little bit concerned that we're not talking about substantive issues in terms of representation. I said, the Mississippi Delta, Southwest Mississippi, and African-Americans as a whole, you, you, you have some African-American chairman, Percy Washington, chairman of Ways and Means, that's fine. I said, there are some money committees that are, that we should have some representation on. The, the interesting thing is when I got elected to uh, the House of Representatives, my first three years, I, there were no real openings on committees. For the first time, uh, as a senator, I'd, all, I'd been vice chair, judiciary. I'd been on the finance committee. I served on some powerful committees and, and from the start had a very important role. When I got to the House, it wasn't a whole lot for me to do. I spent my time in the basement. There's a library down there a lot of people don't know about. And I, I read, there, there are two volumes of the Mississippi history 
the state, the history of the state of Mississippi. So I, I did that and read, and I, you know, I read with particular interest how uh, the legislature was formed right after, and the actions of the legislature right after Reconstruction. And it became apparent to me. I looked. I said, you know, this is weird that all the chairmen of the the Public Health Committee and the Transportation Committee since the turn of the century have all come from Northeast Mississippi. I said, I don't know what the Delta was doing. The chairman of appropriations. And those are big committees. Those are big committees. Yeah. And pe- they, uh, people don't pay much attention to them because they say, well, they, they're big committees, but appropriation ways and means. Well, public health controls Medicaid, which is a, right now is a $8 billion budget. Uh, transportation was a, a 2 or $3 billion budget. And, but those budgets were that big because they had federal matches. And uh, the other thing I realized, too, was that the highways in northeast Mississippi were a little bit better than they were in, in other parts of the state. And the demo, but the economic demographics weren't. The poor whites in the, in the northeast Mississippi didn't live much better than poor blacks in the Delta. And I'm like, well, how do they get highways? Well, the chairman, every chairman, with the exception of Bob Deering, uh, up until 2004, had come from Northeast Mississippi. In public health, the same thing. Northeast Mississippi Regional Medical Center was on, is on par. Again, economic demographics, no, there are not a lot of rich people, white or black, in Northeast Mississippi. But they have one of the uh, state-of-the-art medical centers in Northeast Mississippi, and everybody's scared to go to hospitals in Washington County and and in all these Delta towns. And I said, so, I, I said, and I, and I looked at the money and the budget. I said, look, I said, told the speaker, I said, look, just a point of African-American from the Delta or Jackson somewhere as head of one of those committees. And he said, I can't do it. I'm not doing it. Why would you want that anyway? I said, because. Just, just, so, just so everybody knows, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but the, the Speaker of the House is elected from the membership of the House. Right. And so the Speaker has to solicit votes just like he was running in any other sort of race. That's right. And, and he solicits them from members who have oftentimes make requests like make, the one you're make making. Make requests. Even though we're not, he's not supposed to promise anything, all I asked was that, hey, why don't you let me consider know? Consider it. Consider yeah. it. Right. And, and, then, and then, of course, the speaker then gets to appoint all these committee chairs. He, so he has uh, great power. Singularly appoints them. He decides by himself who he wants to be chair of the committee. All right. Go ahead. I'm and sorry so to interrupt. And so when he told me no, and I, I loved Bill McCoy. I mean, I admired him. I, I loved as a senator watch him come down and read the riot act to senators when he wanted to get something done. He was, a, if you want to learn how to be a legislator, watch Bill McCoy. But, you know, I've been in the Senate for 11 years. I've been in the House for three. I'm like, I, you know, I'm not sitting around on my hands and watching the same old thing happen over and over again. So I went to the other candidate who said, if who desperately needed some votes, said, if that's what it'll take, I'll do it. And, and that candidate was Jeff Smith, Jeff Smith, the, yeah. the gentleman from Lowndes, gentleman from Lowndes, current currently the Ways and Means chairman. Right, and and uh, so I, I found myself as a Democrat kind of out there on an island because Jeff Smith, even though he was a Democrat, was prim- was supported primarily by Republicans. I didn't have an affinity for one or the other. I had a goal. I knew, I thought, and I talked to my, I talked to other Democrats and other members about. It. I said, look. This is what is important. I talked to people from the Delta about it. I said, you're going to stay on the bottom. Your economic development is not going to happen. Nothing's going to happen unless we, you, unless you get money, unless you get somebody who's instrumental to get money for roads. Your health care is not going to get any better. Your hospital is not going to get any better unless your interests are protected in those committees. But people, this kind of thinking was, a, I think, was, you know, a little bit too forward thinking. I think it was too forceful, too dramatic. But anyway, I stuck with what I believe. But, but your goal, um, and this may prove to be ironic as we continue to talk, but yeah. your goal was to improve the lives of uh, essentially poor African Americans in these that, in these areas. That's exactly what I my uh, goal was. by by giving some power to somebody who could make a difference in their lives. Look, I watched in Adams County. This wasn't an African American issue. People, we couldn't get once John's Manville uh, International Paper Company closed down. We couldn't get industry to come. And when I would, and as a senator, I would sit in on these meetings and I asked people who were interested in coming, why would, well, you know, the problem with Natchez is it's hard to get to. He said, you know, you, yeah, we believe in what you can do here culturally. You, you got a decent educational system. I said, but if we could get stuff in and out, it'd be better. We, it, was, there was, it, it was two lanes in and out. Bob Deering became chairman of transportation. 
I mean, immediately, even though we've been on the, the, the 87 highway plan for years, 84 and 61, it got four lane. We got a four lane coming in and out of Natchez, north and south, east and west within a two year period. Yeah, Bob Deering is a senator from um, Natchez, Natchez and the Adams right. County area as and well. And I said, and that was also helped by the fact that Butch Brown was executive director of the Department of Transportation. But just think about uh, also it. Also from Adams also County. Also from yeah. Adams County. All these things happen because we have people in leadership. I say, well, if that's all it takes, if somebody got to be chairman, you say, look, this is where I want the roads to go. Let's do that. It changed the economic environment in Natchez. I said, well, that's what needs to happen everywhere. And so uh, I was just, I was adamant. I'm like, I've been in the center for 11 years, been here for three. I don't care. It, we either get it done or we don't. And so I, I stuck by my guns. Billy McCoy got elected. Jeff Smith got beat. I got ostracized for about a month, and then I was back in on board. So. Okay, so you got ostracized by the speaker, or did you get no, ostracized I got, by you know, by, by my by my fellow Democrats, fellow Black Caucus members? They was angry at me, even though he ended up winning. Uh, they were they resented the fact that I I bucked the the status quo, and you know. But I don't take credit for this. People have told me that as a result of that. Uh, we had we had a record number of African American chairmen because Billy McCoy felt like he needed to step it up. Uh, he got the point. In other he words, got yeah. the point, and uh, and some of those other things happened. We still didn't get a chairman of public health or or, or uh, transportation, uh, but that who got transportation when McCoy got elected, reelected. Uh, Warner McBride. Warner McBride from Northeast Mississippi. Northeast Mississippi, right. And in public health was uh, my desk mate Steve Holland. Steve Holland, yeah. And so, and also and from Northeast Mississippi. Also from Northeast Mississippi, and both of them did a great job of taking care of Northeast Mississippi. And so, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I believe that's what we should do. And, uh, but so, and I stuck by my guns. All right. So, um, 2012 rolls around. Yeah. And uh, was that the 2012 race we were just talking about? No, it was 2008. 2000? Okay. Yeah. So 2012 rolls around. And um, and Billy McCoy is um, no longer there. Yeah, he but got- let me say this. In the interim, Billy McCoy made me vice chair of Medicaid. And the chairman was Dirk Dito, uh, who was a good friend of mine. But, he, he, but, but after about the first year, McCoy essentially called on me I and mean, would invite me into every leadership meeting. He and I got to be good friends. I didn't, that, you know, we didn't fall out. And, and he entrusted a great deal of the work and the leadership and the development. We did a Med- Medicaid technical, technical amendments uh, bill that he pretty much gave to me to, to get done. So that was, that's that's when I got to know you because yeah. I was serving in the Senate and we had several special sessions that's right. in 2008 or nine. I can't right. remember which right. year under uh, Governor Haley Barber. That's right. And one of the things we did was we implemented a bed tax to help with the, the match, the state match for Medicaid. Absolutely right. You were instrumental in negotiating uh, and 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 passing that bed tax and that Medicaid technical amendments bill that Bill McCoy asked me to do. I mean, he could have easily said, "Well, he voted against me." I don't. He said, "Nah, I, you know, I like what you do. I understand what you say. I I didn't want to do it, but here, I want you to do this." And and that was really helpful. That was and it was really instrumental. And so uh, you roll forward to 2012, and uh, Democrats after the election in 2011, Democrats no longer hold uh, the majority in the House of Representatives. And a new speaker is elected, and yeah. that speaker is Philip Gunn. Right. Um, so how do you become transportation chair under uh, Speaker Gunn for his first term? Well, you know, I, w- I was a little bit shocked. But what I was told was that they, because I was willing, I had shown that I was willing to work with, any, you know, whoever was ready to get some work done, they were willing to work with me and asked me what it, you know, what was I interested in? They wanted to make me a chairman. I said, and they wanted to give me a position that would be helpful. I said, you know, I was offered vice chair ways. I said, look, I don't need to be a vice chair. Do what you do what you will. I said, but if you're not going to make me chairman of Medicaid or transportation, then, you know, just put me to work. I don't, I don't need anything else. And I got word. I was in a deposition in, in Miami working on a case and I got a call on my way back, uh, that the speaker had made a selection that chose me as transportation chairman, and and you were surprised by that? I was I was I was a little bit surprised. I, but, but excited? I, yeah, I was excited. Absolutely. You I, finally got one of the chairmanships. I got that you one of the chairmanships. Make a difference. I was excited, and then I was a little bit scared. I said, "Now I've talked all this <laughs> noise about well, this is what you can do." I said, "Now I got to do it." You got to put up now. Yeah, yeah, and you you know, and so I, I became committed to doing all all the things I talked about doing, 
to so, get some. So did you already know uh, how – had you served on transportation? I, I served on transportation. One of the things that when Villa McCoy didn't uh, do what I asked him to do, he did – he did give me a, a, a vice chairmanship on Medicaid, which is a committee I wanted, and he, he put me on transportation, which he didn't have to do, and put me on ways and means, which was, was important to me. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd gotten, I took that time to learn as much as I could about transportation and pressed the chairman who knew I wanted what I, how I felt about that chairmanship and uh, pressed him on all those issues. So I got to know it really well. So were you able to use this this newfound power as chairman of transportation to do some of the things that you had wanted to do four years before? Not as much as I'd like, because you can't do it by yourself, but it helped that the chairman in the Senate was Willie Simmons, who was from the Delta. and Also an African-American. Also African-American, which was unheard of. People still kind of scratching their heads on that one. But we were committed to doing that, and we were able to put money in bridge and road construction on local levels that had never been done before. Uh, one of the things we did was commit, got committed $40 million, and you were part of that, when we pushed the Senate to make sure that they didn't, that all the money that we had extra didn't go to special projects, that it would be spread around to people who needed it. And so we were able to get that done. We were able to get things done at Alcorn. Uh, around the city of Jackson that that we otherwise wouldn't have done the whole capital complex idea that we that that was developed about this the, the city of Jackson really belongs to the state we treat it that way we we put the most pressure on this infrastructure we need to pay for it that idea started while we were uh chairman while I was a chairman. And what you're referring to is the, the Capitol building sits in downtown Jackson, Mississippi. And, 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 and a lot all of, of the state employees and agencies. Right. Too. The, yeah. the Capitol surrounded by, um, at least on three sides, by state buildings with state employees. And, and so there's a stress on the infrastructure coming to and going from and then, you know, of course, being here and using the, the sewer and the water and the Absolutely. gas and electric and everything. Yeah. So, so we passed a, a fairly large uh, project that we call the uh, the capital complex. Right, right. But that, that, but the actual wording and the whole I did started in that you know 2012 tenure. Yeah. Okay. So you had what I would consider to be a successful uh, four year term as transportation chairman. I know you didn't get to do everything you wanted to do. No yeah. chairman does probably. Yeah, no. Um, but let me ask you this: Were there any repercussions from your own community, from from the black community, mem- black members, uh, for you getting? that appointment when I think you were only one of two African-Americans or maybe only one of two Democrats who only got three. okay, who got three. chairmanships when the Republicans took over. Yeah, who three, were the three? Three, right? three, three chairmanships that were that you could <coughs> consider substantive. That was Angela Cargaham who got energy, I think, oil and gas. John Hines got youth and family services. I got transportation. Ed Blackman was chairman of municipalities, That's right. which was a step down from him. He had been chairman of Judd A., and uh, I think Percy Watson was chairman of something. I, I'm not sure it was. I don't. Maybe not. But yeah, maybe four people. Uh, but you know, it was that was that was that was that was four more than anybody thought that Republic. George Flags was chairman of banking. I think that was four more than anybody thought that. Uh, five more than anybody thought that he would do. So did did you get any um, any backlash, any feedback? Or was I think if I had okay? been the only one, I probably would have. But everybody else had voted. For for Bill McCoy in that last speaker's race, with the exception of me, but they also got uh, chairmanships under the gun administration. And and that had been tempered by the fact that Bill McCoy had made me vice chairman of Medicaid at the urging of, I, I must say, of people like Rufus Strauss and Reese Dixon, who said, hey, he's an important member. He felt strongly about what he did. Let's not ostracize him. Let's make sure we do that. So we had had three years of healing. So I was okay. Yeah. So no, I didn't get any real resentment. Yeah. Okay. So um, we pushed forward to 2016. Yeah. And uh, I know Speaker Gunn got involved in a lot of races like my own. Yeah. Uh, trying to get to beat me. Yeah. And then and there were other there were other white Democrats uh, whose races he got involved in. And he actually uh, managed to influence a couple of those. Right. And and our um, our leader. Bobby, Bobby Moke yeah. was beaten, and Shara Hillman right. uh, Lane was beaten, right. um, and then um, Bo Eaton, of course, uh, tied yeah. and came back, and the, the we ended up with a committee to study that election and decide it, decide the outcome of it after he won with a drawing, drawing of the straws, the straws right. and then and then the House essentially put his opponent into his seat. Yeah, um, how how did that how did the dynamics change? 
in uh, after the 15 election and going into 16 when you were no longer chairman of transportation? Well, during my tenure as chairman of transportation, one of the things I told the speaker when he when it, in fact when he called me and said well, I want to make you chairman when I went in and said I'm gonna make you chairman of transportation, I said look. I said, I appreciate that, and I respect it. I said, what you need to understand is there there are things that I'm never going to agree with you on. Was this in 2012 or 2016? 2012. And I said, so, you know, I'm going to do a great job as a transportation chairman. In fact, I had one of the other Republican chairmen tell me in the middle of my tenure, say, you've made the the speaker strong because you are a strong chairman. You and he's in. But I I think that's true. Yeah. But I said, and and eventually I end up. I said, look, Medicaid education. I, I, you and I are just worlds apart. And, in fact, he called me in in the middle of that one time and said, look, you never vote with me. I get, I'm get, i getting complaints from my members. You never vote with me. on." I said, look, you're on the wrong side of these issues. I'm never going to vote with you on those <laughs> issues. I said, Medicaid, I said, how do, how, do, how, do you, how do you responsibly suggest that we need to cut Medicaid when we have the worst health outcomes of any state and we have the highest unemployment rate, the highest rate of poverty, we need Medicaid. I'm, Medicaid is people think Medicaid is for, is for people, just people who are just sitting at home. The Medicaid expansion would have taken care of people who work every day. Every day, three hundred thousand people don't get health insurance who work every day. And I said, we they had simply that discussion. can't afford it, or they their employer doesn't. They can't afford offer. it, and the employer doesn't doesn't provide it. And I said, how do you justify that? I said, well, it's not our responsibility. I said, well, whose is it? I said, maybe the church. I said, well, if you find me a church that's going to pay somebody's medical bills, and that's the church I'm joining, that's the church I'm going to support. I said, <laughs> that's a so, good church to get old in. That's a good in. church to go in. And, and I said, I don't know any churches doing that. So we had a we didn't have a falling out, but I, he understood that I just, you know, I was going to do a great job of transportation chairman, but I was going to fight him. And I did. I would fight him on those issues because he was wrong. And so when it came around again, uh, he said, look, I'm not, I can't keep you as transportation chairman. He said, and we, we're we good friends. He said, I like, I like what you do. You do a great job. He said, but you never vote with me. And my members tell me that why, do I, why would I keep you? I said, well, yeah, you do what you got to do. So, so, so I know uh, firsthand that the speaker has a lot of respect for you. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, may, maybe he wanted to keep you as transportation chair. It sounds like he got pressure from within his own caucus. He Is did. that fair? He told me that. He said, "If I don't, if I keep you as transportation chairman, uh, I'm gonna have a rebellion. People just and and not to be trivial, but in my tenure as transportation chairman, I did have Republicans go to him, and he would call me and say, I had a complaint about you today.' I said, "Well, tell me what it was," and he'd tell me, and I chuckle about it and move on. He said, "What you gonna do?" I said, "I do exactly what I said I was gonna do." He said, I said, unless you want to take my chairmanship away, I'm going to run my committee. And he would let me run my committee. There were people who went to him and say, will you make Robert Johnson do what we asked him to do? I said, he said, nah, he's the chairman. And so I knew there were people out there who, you know, had a hard time with me. But they were they were also wrong. I, I just followed the rules. So so what is it that uh, – what, what was the complaint, that you wouldn't – uh, well, were, try to enact a pet project yeah, for them pet, or because they, 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 you weren't uh, pet, a Republican? or Pet project. They because they wanted it and they were they were members of the uh, party that controlled the house. Uh, even though I was transportation chairman, they felt entitled. They felt entitled, and I just said, "Well, you, we're not doing it. Either we're not doing pet projects because I'm not doing it for anybody, Democrats or Republicans. We want to make sure we make everybody as whole as possible. Or somebody would come and say, "I want to name." A bridge after my uncle. I said, well, you know, we don't name bridges after your uncle <laughs> or, or anybody who's living. They got to, you know, our rules, you know, those just small things. But they didn't like being told no. And so I didn't do anything to to uh, because I felt uh, to be difficult. I just did things that the rules required. Yeah, me so to right do. and wrong. Right and wrong. That's all it was. So so 16, um, you, you don't get transportation. Yeah. And uh, John Hines does not get youth and family. No, Ed Blackman doesn't get municipality. So what? What happened? Why? Why getting rid? Why? Why does the speaker, in your view, get rid of these uh, African Americans who uh, have a long tenure and who did uh, a good job as chairman of those committees? So why does he decide to, to have a purge? Well, and I'm not. This is not a uh, indict. This is an, an indictment or a criticism. This is just what it is. The speaker became a person. And he may have always been that way, but he became a person who it was about this. And, you know, we were on a panel with him. He said, what, what the Republican Party feels, or the Republican uh, idea about this is, I'm like, what does that got to do with whether or not it's good for Clinton or whether it's not as good for Adams County? Doesn't ha- you know, we don't make decisions on how to bring an industry in because it's a Republican concept. It, it has nothing to do with it. But that's what he did. He'd be, I, you know, I 
didn't believe it until I heard it, but even he went to the Shelby County Fair and said, if, if you want anything out of the legislature, you need to elect a Republican as your representative because nobody else will get anything. Well, I was there at the Neshoba County Fair yeah. when he made that speech, and yeah. I was shocked, and yeah. I think a lot of people were. But what he essentially was telling voters is if you don't send a Republican representative to the House of Representatives, yeah. then your folks back home aren't going to get anything. Right. You voters back in that district right. will be left out. Right. You'll be sidelined. Right. I think he even used a metaphor about him being second-string quarterback at the University he of did. Baylor. He did. Uh, so – you know, that sort of um, forecast for us where he was heading. Yeah. And that was in 15, the right. summer of 15. Right. So he told us essentially in that speech, this is what I'm going to do. do. Right. And, that's what uh, he and did. then he did it. He did it. Not only just did he do it on, on chairmanships and those kind of things that were important, but he did it on legislation. If you were a Democrat and you had something, it didn't matter if it was a good idea or not. It just didn't come out of committee. And you may see it the next year with a Republican name on it, but it, if it had a Democratic name on it, it didn't come out of committee. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Uh, I was uh, in the Senate for four years, and I know at least two out of those four years, I filed a bill to increase the alcohol content in beer from 5%. I think I started at 10 or 12, and eventually it came around to 8% because that's what everybody agreed was a good jump, right. 5 to 8%, because that would allow all these additional choices in terms of beers available in the market. Uh, it got killed in the House. I mean, it got killed in the Senate for a couple of years. I moved to the House. It got killed. In the second year I was in the House, a Republican filed the exact same bill with his name on it, yeah. and it got passed. Right. That's the type of thing that you're, That's exactly you're alluding it. to. Right, right, right. I mean, you. Uh, there were, I continued to introduce bills on roads and things that needed to be done. Nobody would, you know, it wouldn't come out of committee. The, the chairman introduces the same bill as the bill comes out of committee. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's who's a Republican? So it's uh, yeah, I mean that's they instituted that philosophy, and it was all about political advantage. It wasn't about whether or not we're going to get anything done, and and I and I say that when people say, well, that's just reality. No, it hadn't. It hadn't been reality in the legislature. My first eleven or twelve years, they were always Republicans, they were always Democrats, but people found a way to work together for the good of their area. Or, you know, the Coast delegation would work together with the Republican or Democrats to make sure things happen. I think we're kind of getting back there because the other way doesn't work. Well, so that is a good segue into yeah. um, my next question. And, and we'll, we'll wind up here in just a minute with, um, with what you believe to be um, the future of the House of Representatives and Mississippi legislature. Yeah. I mean, we, we seem to have gone about as far right in terms of rigid partisanship in our state legislature as you possibly can. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. So, so where do we go from here, Robert? You got to come back at least to the middle. Far right doesn't work. I mean, for that matter, far left doesn't work. But far right works li less than anything because far right is couching the idea that a government is too big. It certainly doesn't work in a state like the state of Mississippi, where 40 percent of our funding comes from the federal government. I mean, we don't exist without federal government import of, of money and programs. Uh, and it, they all designed for us to stay in them long enough for us to get to a place. We, we still need to do that. And so this idea that, well, we don't want, I mean, the idea of turning down $11 billion in Medicaid money that would have created over 9,000 jobs that pay an average of $60,000 a year in a state that has the highest unemployment rate is ridiculous. And the only reason they would do it is because you had an African-American president who was a Democrat. And it, and so they, they, it, 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 they felt good. They, they, they played to their base. Ah, oh, we're not going to take that Obamacare. It's going yeah, because it's Obamacare. But now those same people who they were playing to are asking, well, what's going to happen to my rural hospital? Or why we don't have an emergency room in my hospital? And why are the doctors leaving my area and I can't go get medical treatment? So it's a short-term um, decision, a political uh, decision that gives a short-term political advantage. Give them. But long, right, right. It, to, to the right. But long-term uh, consequences oh, yeah. to, to uh, the status of health care and health care outcomes in the state of Mississippi. Louisiana went bankrupt. They elected a Democratic governor. He immediately said, bring me the money. They said no, too. But immediately when he got in, he took the money. It helped them get somewhere back on their feet. But it'll, it's, this, is, this whole medical crisis is going to bankrupt us. And, so the, and, and you look not only at medical but the status of our infrastructure in, in the state of Mississippi, and we have something like a couple of thousand bridges that are deemed to be structurally deficient. Am I right about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Uh, yes. 2,800 bridges are structurally. 28% of the bridges in this state are structurally 
uh, deficient. Which means that at any given time, a bus carrying a load of children could drive over that bus and, I mean, drive over that bridge. It's a tragic idea, but it's exactly what could happen. And people say, well, they're posted. People drive over posted bridges all the time. And so we talk to our colleagues about this very often, and this is at least the third session, maybe four, that we've been talking about this, and everybody seems to agree that this is a problem. Why can't we get anything done about it? Because people are more concerned, as the speaker said, with their Republican ideas and whether or not they can get reelected as a Republican than they are about getting something done for their community. They won't They won't see the light until something dr- dramatic happens. And our economy in the state, uh, while it seems to be sort of tracking the national economy and picking up a little bit of steam, is still doing very poorly when compared to our region. It's picking up steam. Yeah, it follows it, but way behind. I mean, at a we're much lagging. lower rate. Yeah, we're lagging. Yeah. So, and then we do something like we did back in 2016 when we cut taxes for corporations, largely out-of-state corporations. Half a billion that we're about to we're about to eat that lunch right now. It's about to start cutting into our budget. So, as a result of that and previous tax cuts, I think you had someone uh, perform a calculation one time, and we had given away about three hundred fifty million dollars in tax cuts before, before this, that yeah. half now, billion. Now we're up to about eight eight hundred and fifty that we just given away. And, and the result of that is you you in starving the beast, you have to lop off appendages, uh, and you ha- you know metaphorically you you have to cut, for instance, uh, county health care. Um, what what are the the, the units of um, the county health centers, health yeah, departments? County health departments, you have to cut them. Mental health centers that we desperately, they're already des- seriously deficient. Now you can't do that. You know, you, the people at, at uh, the state hospital in Whitfield, they can't keep anybody more than 30 days. So you they're releasing people that need to be institutionalized who are walking up and down the street uh, and are danger to themselves and a danger to other people. So I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand how anybody can justify it at all. And the tax cuts that we're talking about giving, we give to people. We give to people who take that money. They don't. It's not like we're giving it to Mississippi corporations who keep it here. They take it. They take it home wherever they're from. They walk out of here with it. Now, <clears throat> I know you've got um, a couple of college age kids, maybe one or two who just graduated from yeah, college. Yeah. Are they interested in coming back to the state of Mississippi and making their lives here? Uh, only one of them. The other two, you know, they. They they started out saying yeah, maybe, but now you know it it's, it makes it it's hard to make a good case for it. And I you know you what you want for your children is as much success. You know if you, you applaud them if they want to make a sacrifice to come back and make a contribution. I wish and I hope and pray that that happens. But you what you want is for them to have some freedom and some some success, some economic freedom, some success. So they're going to go wherever they can find a job and they can do well. And, you know, I've got two college-aged daughters as well, one who's about to graduate. And and as you say, it's difficult to make the case for why they should – Come to come back to Mississippi. Yeah, the opportunities are not here that that they deserve. The opportunities opportunities that they deserve it are not here the way they should be. So, well, you know, we don't have unlimited time. So, if you could and try to put it in a nutshell, what is it you think that you and I can do as members of the Mississippi Legislature to improve uh, our state in such a way so that we can make the case for our young people to stay here and make their lives here? Well, I, you know. The first thing we can do is we we need to start sending people to Washington who we can be proud of who 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 uh, who, who when when they open their mouths and start talking about issues and and, and ideas that people will say oh he's from Mississippi you know you, you know when you when you have we need to we need to show the state that there are people like you here people who are progressive and people who understand who understand that we don't live in a vacuum that there's a world out there and that that we want to be a part of it. Uh, and so what we can do as legislators uh, is is to start meeting the needs of our constituents uh, at where, 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 they, where, they, where their feet meet the ground. And I, I continue to say the same thing. If you if you have a healthy workforce, if you have a way for these rural communities to get people in and out, uh, uh, to, uh, to move goods in and out, which means that you got to have good roads, you got to have good rail, and that— uh, and you got to have good health care because you want people to come to work every day. 
Though, uh, it, I, I know it sounds like, oh, that's, that's a lot to do. It's not that complicated. And we got people in Washington who want to help us do it that we're saying no to. And so we, we have to take the leadership on that and make sure that happens. And that's not going to happen until it gets drastic enough that people understand, oh, what David Barry said two years ago, I think we probably ought to start doing it. So the most important thing we can do is stick to our guns and keep pressing the issues the same way that we have already. We just can't let up because— you know, those chickens are going to come home to roost, and we need to be there to, to provide leadership to say this is what needs to be done. There's a world out there, and Mississippi wants to be a part of it. We Look, we don't need any more people. God bless the governor. He's a really nice man. But I don't want him going to Paris saying this is who we are. I don't, I don't want – that's <laughs> not who I want the face to be. I need people to know that there are people here who are – Extremely, not that he's not intelligent, but who who want to portray intelligence, who want to be progressive, who want to know what the world thinks and how we can be involved in it. That's what I want people to do. So, you know, we talked about Medicaid and we talked about, and I've done a lot of talking, uh, but why why do you think that we turned down what's now amounted to $11 billion, at the time it was $9 billion. Why do we turn down $9 billion in Medicaid expansion and in a, under the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, and I think we've talked about it a little bit, but let me give a little bit of backdrop. This, this governor came in, and he said, I want to create a medical corridor, a medical economy in the state of Mississippi. So when the ACA came along and they offered – Eleven, twelve billion dollars to Mississippi if we expanded Medicaid. I thought, well, this is a no-brainer. This is consistent with what the governor wants to do, but yet he didn't. And so I thought a lot about why he didn't do that. And the best I can come up with is he made a calculation, a a political calculation, that he was better served by saying no to the black man in the White House than he was. Uh, by taking this $12 billion and improving the lives of 300,000 Mississippians uh, due to them having health care, you know, consistent, regular health care, and creating 9,000 jobs in the health care industry in Mississippi. I I have no other conclusion that I can reach. And and isn't the logic in your conclusion the fact that we we still get like an 80% match on Medicaid? We didn't didn't say stop sending us Medicaid money. We just said we don't want the one that well, and if you recall, the governor's justification was we can't be certain that if we accept this uh, money from the government uh, in year one and year two, that it's going to be there in year three and year four, which is completely ridiculous on its face because we, we have a lot of programs that are dependent upon federal dollars, and we don't simply stop those programs because the government may not be there Absolutely. in a couple of years. In transportation is a prime example of that. We get a lot of transportation dollars from the federal government. And we plan to get the money. Exactly. We don't and stop. We do it with education. Right. We could do the same. We do do the same thing with health care. Right. But on this particular uh, element, one, one little section, he said, that no. was a lot of money. He said, can't, he said can't, no. can't take the Obamacare money. <laughs> Not that 100% for three years and that 90% from here on after. $12 billion yeah, in, in the Mississippi economy, yeah. which is roughly twice what our budget is that we just passed and, and Sine died on today. That's right. That's right. Representative Robert Johnson. A gentleman from Adams, I very much appreciate your time Thank today. You. It's been a pleasure. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to work with you. Not same here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.